Harvard Divinity School. Release party for Periphery's Journal of Word and Image number 5, November 30th, 2022. Hey, hello, welcome to the launch of the 5th um, to 2022 edition of Peripheries, and so also the fifth anniversary of our Literary and Arts Journal. I'm sorry we're starting a little bit late, but welcome. Um, so I have the journal here. <laughs> it just got delivered to me 10 minutes ago, um, and it's beautiful. I want to thank every single member of our editorial board, um, all of our contributors, all the artists and writers who fill the pages, and of course the Center for the Study of World Religions and Harvard Divinity School, um, which houses us and supports us, makes everything possible. I especially want to thank our editorial manager, Harry Hall, who keeps us on track all year, and our designer, Jake DeLuca, who labored to produce this beautiful book. So you can purchase a copy um, through the Grolier Poetry Bookshop, and support that institution. Um, Harry, maybe you'll put the Grolier um, URL in the chat for everyone. And you can also download a free digital copy of the journal from our website. Harry, maybe you wanna put that URL in as well. Um, I'd suggest downloading a copy now to read along tonight, which serves as a kind of sneak peek of the journal. And when you download it, you'll notice that this year we changed our subtitle it says a journal of word, image, and sound. So we added sound. You might know that each year we include a special guest edited folio. And this year's folio is a, um, uh, pieces which compose or perform or conduct what we've called musical events. And I wanna thank profusely our sound editors, Beck Lane, who's from, zooming in from Berlin, and Martin Thomas uh, for carefully and generously curating the special folio. Uh, the folio and journal begins, I just wanna say a few things about the journal. It begins with pieces that we unearthed from the John Ashbury archive. And I want to thank the John Ashbury estate for permission to publish. Um, we include five poems from an incomplete manuscript which explores the poet's relationship to classical music. Beck actually discovered that Ashbury's partner David Carmini um, kept a list of what music Ashbury listened to when he was composing. So out of 200 boxes in the Ashbury archive, we stumbled on these lists and we include some in the journal, along with the mysterious envelope, which I think everyone should look at. Um, the folio of musical events is spread throughout the journal, it includes text scores and performance direction, directions, and really explores this interplay between the sonic, the visual, and the linguistic. And we thought about sound throughout. So you'll see that in the digital copy of the journal, it includes audio and links to video. Um, just look for the little play symbol in the uh, table of contents. So you can hear some of our favorite poets read their poems, including Martha Collins and Chen Chen. So I hope you'll enjoy leafing or scrolling through the edition tonight while we listen and watch another audiovisual compliment tonight's launch. Um, I've gathered together some of the contributors, some will be coming a bit later, um, to give you a small taste of what the journal includes in the breadth of the material. I'm not gonna introduce each speaker. Um, if you don't know them already, you will soon, but I will say that we'll be hearing from 
some poems, we'll be seeing some art, we'll be watching a video and thinking about performance. We're going to start with um, GC Waldrop. Um, this is our most experimental edition of Peripheries thus far, and I'm so proud that we are supporting this new experiment of established poets like GC. So GC has given us excerpts from a new cycle um, called Kingdom, which draws on the philosophical theology of George Rapp, the founder of a 19th century American utopian community. So GC, would you like to um, share your screen and give us a taste of the, the kingdom? Thank you, Shira, so much. Um, it's such a pleasure to be able to read and, and uh, listen and view work with my fellow panelists um, tonight. This is a journal that I've known about and admired for a long time. Um, the two poems that, that Harry and, and Shira have published in this issue come from a longer sequence of mine uh, that's inspired by the Harmony Society, which was one of 19th century America's more successful communes. If you know something about Oneida, or you know something about the Shakers. Um, this was kind of a German version of that uh, in very close touch with the Shakers, led by a man named George Rapp, uh, who immigrated in the 1790s with his followers from Germany. They lived in Pennsylvania, and then they lived in Indiana, and then that didn't work, and they moved back to Pennsylvania. Um, they were an odd group in the German pietist tradition. Um, this is a photograph, uh, uh, actually a postcard of the, the hedge labyrinth that they built in New Harmony, Indiana. Um, every one of their communities had to have a hedge labyrinth. And you can deduce what you would like about their theology or, or their philosophy from that. And every community also had, right here in the middle, you see what looks like a, a farm outbuilding um, this was called a grotto to them. And it was also part of the symbolic landscape that they constructed everywhere they had a community. It was supposed to look like a rough farm building on the outside. Um, inside it has the classical finish uh, and actually um, is partly gilt in gold leaf. And again, you can uh, deduce what you like uh, from their philosophy or theology. So two poems in this issue, and I'm going to just read one of them to leave time uh, for other people, and it is um, here. This is a, a poem that's inspired in part uh, by some of George Rapp's writings and also by the little grotto, the little outbuilding um, you saw. George Rapp was obsessed with alchemy also, uh, as some of his predecessors were. He just thought if we could figure out that alchemy was somehow real, maybe literally, maybe figuratively, maybe spiritually, something new and different would happen. We're still waiting to figure out whether that's true. This is George Rapp on the fall of man. Abut ejectments. All pretty bridges, please. Seize pavements. Let us bandage softly. The fig leaves now opening like a chamois cloth. Teeth deceive us. Lie with your back to the lake. We'd have leapt, wept an island then, early and late. Our lovers fallen. Suffer an idea about suffering to suffer. Or to govern are two distinct things that merge often. The gnomon has strong hands to hold what? Lazarus, 
I suspect. Lazarus and his days full stop. Count by threes or fives, by twos or sixes. Which is nightlier? Arc of shelter. Parts of a circle, cord and sustain. Soot, pew, loaf, radius of frost. We discover not time, but pain. Perhaps conceive a thin restraint. Astride the lilies and their musk, as repetition demonstrates, surely a wound. In the little house, a wind dwelt, a coarser linen. I viewed exhibits, yes, all hidden projects. Speak then of opulence. In solitude map, one nation, two nations, three nations, a field. And in that field, what some call witness, bathe it bind its wounds, and they are not our wounds, but they make the same small noises. Perhaps every wound does. I will ask about this. Silver nails will do to saint a dream. I assure you, we shall speak again. Thank you. That was so exquisite and perfect. I'm not supposed to speak, I know, but it was just the perfect one to begin with. <laughs> um, thank you, GC, that was so beautifully read as well. Um, Stephanie, will you show us some art? Stephanie Pierce. Yes, I would love to. Let me figure out which way it's going. Is it, is it clear out there? Okay, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm a, I'm a painter and I make paintings that are about time and light and perception and how things change over the course of time. And the paintings take place over really long durations of time, many months up to a year. And I find that within that um, extended period of things changing in the world and time passing and my perception of the things changing, something really interesting and strange can happen in the paintings, which starts to verge on something that's hallucinatory and um, takes takes the everyday out of um, out of being mundane and becomes something that could point to something else. Um, I'm really interested in and challenged by certain subject matter that um, at one, on one hand may seem like a non-subject and on another hand uh, feel like some, more recently dealing more with um, things that might be seen as overly sentimental. sentimental. Um, so this painting is titled Moonrise and it's one of the first paintings that I did when I moved to New York City six years ago. And um, it is, I, I spent a lot of time in these paintings trying to locate what the subject is. I don't always know when I start the paintings. So in this painting, I, I eventually started noting um, the sun, the movement of the sun and the moon in that space and trying to grasp that, which was really difficult. Um, and my paintings are very rooted in the places that they're made. So I had come from the Ozark Mountains previous to living in New York. I didn't, I'm not from there, but I was living there for almost nine years. So my work had taken on this relationship to light and the movement of light through a space and how light can relate to time. So that continued as I, as I started painting living in New York. And these are some details of that painting. And you can see if you 
look closely at the paintings, they're, um, they look almost like shattered fragments and you start to see through the layers and it's almost, you know, in one sense it feels really tangible and in another sense it feels really intangible and fleeting. Um, and I spend a lot of time trying to balance the that sense of time and the sense of something I don't know and something that I haven't experienced that to really capture that in the paintings through process. Um, this is another piece that was is in the journal, the current issue. Um, this one's titled, titled I, Cloud. And in this one, I was specifically thinking about, can I make a painting about um, sentimental, something very sentimental, like a soul song. And I was thinking about Otis Redding um, and I have listened to Otis Redding and thought about his music very deeply since I was probably 20 years old. And I'm from Memphis where some of his records were recorded and where he lived. So it's it's all feels connected as a part of a, just a long, a long relationship of some, to something in my life. Um, and at the same time, I'm thinking about other things related to the history of painting and conversations in, in that world. So thinking about the role of light in an enunciation painting, but in this case, not being about the birth of, of a, a messiah of some kind. Um, and also making other small references to things in the paintings. Um, and there's an Otis Redding song uh, that's a traditional that the chorus says, you don't miss your water till the well runs dry. So in the bottom part of this painting, you can see a picture of water and Otis Redding and they're all embedded and um, the, the conversations happening within the symbolism is all embedded within the work. This is a detail. And I'm also, you know, other conversations throughout the history of painting, it's always in my mind, whether it's in the forefront or not, it's always there. So thinking about the history of self-portraiture or the history of Vinitas, um, as well as Annunciation paintings. And um, in the past several years, I've become very influenced by this tapestry at the Met Cloisters that's titled The Hunt of the Unicorn. And I'm really intrigued with the complexity of the composition, how interwoven all of the forms are and um, the ornate quality of the, uh, the foliage. And it started to really influence my work. Um, and when things like that happen, it's not intentional. It's something that just happens because I'm I'm drinking it in and I'm absorbing it and it's it's coming out later. So this is another piece. It was a detail of a larger painting titled um, Where the Tongue Can't Follow. And this is the this is the piece that that detail comes from. And this is another detail from that painting. So my relationship to landscape changed a lot when I moved to New York City. Prior to this, I, the world was full of the natural world and mountains and woods. And here it's very different. And I started to bring all of that into the studio and started to really look through that um, natural world to the, to the landscape outside the urban landscape. And this is another piece that's in the journal um, titled Went Down Like Shadows. Um, this one, I, there's a shift in my location. It's the third place I've lived in New York City and a place that I've felt most grounded and rooted in since I've moved here. And I've, I've, you can see it in the body of work that this comes from, but the I started to really then track the movement of the sun and the moon in the paintings and also to include things in my immediate surroundings like the cats, um, which became really prominent. And 
I feel like when I made these paintings, I just, I, I go very deeply inside of them and I, and I stay with them for, I don't know, up to a year. This one was up to a year. And it's, it's a way of marking time and it's a way of um, documenting experience. Um, and I guess I could end on, I feel like my work really comes out of something that I read in a book by Gaston Bachelard from The Poetics of Space. And it's very simple, um, but I relate to it in my work strongly. It says, when a dreamer can reconstruct the world from an object that he transforms magically through his care of it, we become convinced that everything in the life of a poet is germinal. When I read that, I don't know, oh, I don't know, almost 20 years ago, a little less than that, um, it just really resonated with me how much um, the every making the the pursuit of making meaning out of everyday experience um, and how that can relate to pain. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I didn't, I wasn't aware of all the connections to music and, and poetry. So that like, yeah, it was so, so beautiful as well. That. And thank you. Thank you. Um, Rebecca, Beck, um, would you play a video for us? Hi, um, I'm just going to share the score first. Um, because I thought it would be good to see where, um, like how the, de the decisions that we made um, uh, and why. Um, okay, yes, share. Can, can you, this is, this is working? Okay, um, so this is a score by Ryoko Okama, who is a Japanese-British um, composer and artist who lives in the UK. Uh, and she wrote this piece for myself and um, a vocalist called uh, Stina Janvin in 2020. Um, and we, um, because of COVID, we couldn't perform it live. So we made a video for it, a video piece. And um, the score, as you can see, is it's called a list and it literally is a list of um, descriptions of of what to do um, so for example the first one a long note as continuously as you can hold the second make a short melody and repeat a short note every 10 to 20 seconds improvise be mis mischievous a long note in harmony to what you're hearing be polite pause two at a time one to another, back and forth only once, noise, at ease, leave. And then at the bottom, she states, perform in an unusual place, but not too far. Predetermine the duration. A list is performed either in order or randomly. Um, so at the time, um, I was living, I was in Berlin, um, and Stina was in um, Norway in her father's cabin in the forest. So um, the choices of places was, was sort of, I guess, limited due to COVID, but um, I guess where Stina was, was already an unusual place to hold a performance. 
and I um, uh, chose to um, to do mine in a nurse an abandoned nursing home that was around the corner that every day I would take my dog to to um, to run around in and um, it turned out that the building was actually open some people had been squatting it in the past and um, my next door neighbor made a video of me um, in the um, the hall where they would all eat um, and I'll just share that now
Hi, sorry. <laughs> it it was uh it stopped. The video is well the visuals paused and it started happening. Oh, interesting. Okay. So um should I just leave it <laughs> there then? I think it, yes. it, I mean I think we got a real sense of it. And then the that right. is I think that is in the journal, like the full video version of that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. yeah cool i i just want to i just one thing i wanted to say was that um that i forgot to mention was that um Stina and i only specified the time for it. so we actually had no idea what the other was doing and then the um, editor put them together so um yeah it was it, it was uh random in that respect um yeah Okay, thanks. <laughs> so cool. Um, so, Audra, I think you're going to play a video too. Hopefully, it works. Yes, I have a few slides and a video. I'm just going to um, share my screen. Okay, great. So, thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to be here and um, listen and see and sort of experience um, all of your work. Um, I'm really honored to have work in the uh, Peripheries Journal. This is one of them. Um, I'm a visual artist mainly, but I work um, with sound and language. Um, and I also work with some performers. Um, so th this is a kind of a, um, a sound score or visual poetry. It's um, extracted from Clarice Lispect um, Agua Viva, which is uh, living water. And I'll just read the, this uh, phrase in the center here, but it's, it's kind of an invitation for um, a reading or sounding or singing, but the phrase in the center, and in the instant is the O, oh, the ah, the air, my song, a hallelujah. And these extractions or how these kind of O's or A's kind of um, bring to the surface of the page was you know, from a prompt from a different book, um, also Bachelard, um, from the chapter Water's Voice, uh, from the book Water and Dreams. Um, he wrote, after the A's of the tempest, after the howling of the north wind, we are happy to hear the O's of water, O, the whirlwinds and lovely roundness of their sounds. He continues, a liquidity is a principle of language. Language must be filled with water. So I was kind of thinking that, um, of this set of scores as a series of utterances, conjurings, the way that um, our, our sounds could kind of um, you know, rise to the uh, you know, surface of the page. And... Um, they exist oftentimes as books, as sound scores. This particular um, score from this series that is also included in Peripheries was included in a group show um, at a space called Compound in, in uh, Yucca Valley, uh, California this past year and was printed very large scale um, on silk fabric. And so that idea of wave or water was also part of the visual experience of the work. And the score was um, performed by uh, a, a composer, singer, and musician, Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs, with uh, 
with uh, Mindy Elichu and Stephanie Aston. And this was also at Compound in, in Yucca Valley, California. And this was the end of the performance. It's a short excerpt. Um, and I invited Carolyn to, um, to interpret these um, O's and we kind of uh, talked about it um, a little bit, but this idea of kind of a round or a circle or a call and response with these three singers um, just performing this, you know, one syllable. Um, and you can kind of see the, the fading uh, desert at night sky in the background. So this is about two and a half minutes performance of this score. So thank you so much. It's really joyous, Audra. <laughs> thank you. Um, we were meant to have um, Andrew Morgan read a poem to us now, and Genia and Barris 
show us some visual art, but they're both having um, technical trouble uh, getting in to Zoom. So I think let's, Joe, Kudoka, please. And then, yeah, we'll just see. I, I'm, I'm next on the list. I don't know if you had something else in mind. That's exactly what I was going to ask for you three. Okay. Um, I think I'm just going to present and talk a bit about one of my pieces that's in the journal, uh, which is one I haven't really performed a lot. It's more of a private practice that sort of happens in public called Bits of Metal in a Jar. I'll see if I can, if we can uh, see anything here. And can you still hear me? Uh, yeah, I started collecting just a lot of my work deals with detritus of things and bits from physical and cultural leftovers and trash and waste. And I like making sounds with little things. And I found myself picking things up off the street. Uh, oh, I can show you a particularly good one, I think. I once found this this very beautiful metal plate, which is a nearly Eve Klein blue, uh, on a on a street in the Czech Republic, and it makes a lovely sound. Uh, things like that just keep me looking out for stuff, and as a result, I found I had lots of little things sitting around my house and I would play around with them. And I would keep things in this, in these various jars. Actually, the first one I started is here. It's very full of lots of metal. Uh, that got left in the UK when I moved out of there. And years later, I picked it up from storage in a friend's house. And at various times, I'll just start doing this. And I made the piece. Uh, just by sitting around my house and doing what I'll do now.
uh, and I was just doing this at home, trying to think of what to do. Oh, there's one there. And one other one fell on the floor. If I wasn't talking to you all, I would be looking for it now. Uh, and I realized I just like doing this again. And when you do it again, you get a different arrangement of sounds from the way the resonances in the jar pick up things as they hit one another. And as you go through them, and different jars make different resonances and depending on what's in there and how springs bounce around and metal bounces around, you get a con different constellation of sounds, but it, you also, depending on how precious or non-precious any of this is to you, you also get a different constellation of memory from where you found your bits of what would have been thrown away or recycled that you have decided to save for this uh, otherwise completely meaningless practice. And I could go on for hours, but I, I think you get the drift. So uh, yeah, I, I'm so happy to see this in action. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to see everything performed once I've, like, I've seen it on the page, obviously. But I remember yours ends with, um, like, forgive me for getting this wrong, I have bits yeah. of method in a jar and then says at the end, you could do the same. Yes. We're getting the same because we couldn't quite hear it was very faint so yes everyone, it, it is everyone and has it, to up this practice now it well it and it, it's one of these pieces that uh often i'm i'm writing for other performers and i've conceived of a piece and i make the notation and it gets sent off to a performer and this was one where it kind of uh worked in the other way around Mm -hmm. I developed this this practice out of habit or hobby or something uh, and realized after doing it a while that this, in fact, was the piece I was working on, that I didn't have to refine it in some way. And I performed it and then it was time to make a score. And instead of telling people what to do, I just explained what I have been doing. Right. and give them this invitation right right uh and i think i think really every score functions as an invitation to mm -hmm. to make work mm -hmm. for, for others but it's not explicit i mean often it seems um oh it's not not forceful but in some way commanding uh, uh there, there's a different a power structure at play mm -hmm. in in lots of notation and yeah. this one, I, I really wanted to be clear that uh, I, I have made a practice and it's just letting people know that uh, 
they're not the only crazy one if they want to do something like that. I got nice. their back. Yeah, lovely. It's beautiful. Um, um, I don't. I don't know if there's more you want me to say, or this is beautiful. If we we end with a poem now, we'll have be we all have been together for an hour. So I think that's appropriate. So thank you, Joe. Oh, okay. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure uh, seeing and hearing everyone else's work. Great, and now Jose Luis Moctezuma is still there. Yes, beautiful. Um, would you? close us out for the night and read us a poem we'd be very grateful absolutely i meant i heard joe mentioned eve klein blue and coincidentally my poem has eve klein blue in it so there we go perfect um should i share my screen so that they could see the poem i think that would be nice if you would yeah. and thank you everyone thank you shara thank you um um, my hosts, um, so I can't read your name, uh, Kama, uh, obviously my panelists, Stephanie, uh, also so, uh, props and shout out to Timothy Leo as well for contacting me. Um, so it's an honor to be in this issue. I have one poem, it's called NPC. And for those who are gamers, NPC is a very familiar term, non-player character. Um, so in these kind of sophisticated video games that they make, you'll encounter uh, in these kind of open world sandbox games, you'll encounter these, you know, um, these characters inhabit the world that you're gaming in. And uh, they're automated, they're computer characters, and they just sort of repeat um, specific lines, uh, you know, one or two lines, and they keep repeating it. So, so I was fascinated by this concept, particularly when it became a meme, I believe. Uh, for a type of, um, how would you say, um, someone who ha uh, whose agency is depoliticized and sort of uh, reduced um, to what people would call like a very normy way of thinking. It's been co-opted by both conservative and liberal uh, ideological thinkers, but I'm more interested in it um, in terms of its aesthetics, right? An aesthetic of the NPC, an aesthetic of failure also an aesthetic of flat affect, right? How does affect work um, when it comes to our notions of, of, of agency in the political landscape, when it comes to our notions of power, of action, right? And the what, what I would call the gamification of, 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 the, of the everyday, right? Um, where agency and action has been reduced to a simulation, right? Um, so the poem has a lot to do with that. Hopefully it works. Um, so I'm interested in in this sort of uh, flat affect turning on its heartbeat to something like panic. All right, here's NPC. All of you hear me fine? Here where I sit by the Klein blue wall, inertia is an ethic. I am open to the automation. Neither sleep nor sleepy. Wave hello, wave at the passersby, walk toward me so I can see you. Don't sit down, walk back to the wall and don't ascend. Be at home by 612. This is life run amok in programmed density. And I am the fiction 
that makes the UFOs believe in our world. The attention to detail is quite astonishing, really, how the flat earth can be circular at the same time as I sit here and stare at the planets and the squirrels sign language Akkadian when they're frolicking in the branches. And wow, the way you talk is so lifelike. I am content with the amount of content I produce. I am content with our object permanence beyond the visible entrenchment of obstacles at the crack of dawn's egg in an abject fossilization of the human will. The noise is too much in the window without our consent. And the sun is a mythos dried up in the seeds stark gaze in the dark, waiting to hatch its forfeiture of growth. The inverse of violence, a cagey acquiescence to narratives of stagnation, paint dry, illuminating the tools of conjunction. I am not scored in the bones. I do not exist as people do. Careful to distinguish between digits the gaps in our autonomy and what infections permeate the creatures of warmth. How I wish I could be in love too, but the idiolect instructs me to troll the anti-antimatters, the suck dry of ram blood, the underworld denizens who pivot from action to an action so remarkably like lambs in the field of slow awakening. And I am free to follow the rituals, the spectacle of dishwashing in 64 bit, or a slow rot to decision of the mothers of contraption. The tiles are obviously fake. The hot take is obviously fake. The dachshund is obviously fake. The words aren't coming. The surface depth of my face is obviously fake. The 401k is obviously fake. The laws of the fathers are obviously fake. The founders are obviously fake. The borders to the border are obviously fake. The heat of the day is obviously fake. The climate is coming apart. The room seams are coming apart. The figures in the carpet are coming apart. The birds are blowing up. The resolution in the mirror is leaking. The glaciers are melting. The island is sinking. The water is rising to the point of being real, to the point of being real, to the point of being real to the point of being real, 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 to the point of being. Thank you. I didn't realize how intense it was going to be to end there. I was thinking of such an intense way to and hope everyone um, carries that energy with them now. Um, thank you so much, um, everyone, for reading and 
forming and giving us a, a small taste of what the journal contains. Um, I hope everyone's going to just flick to Andrew Morgan's poem, read that because he couldn't make it, look at Yenny's um, art. And um, I should also say that tomorrow we have a very intimate in-person launch at the Grolier Bookshop in um, Hubbard Square with readings from contributors who, are, who live in the area, Nick Flynn, Martha Collins, uh, Nomi Epstein, Tyth Heller, Darius Atafet, Packman, um, Packham, and um, Kyra Mo. Um, but the bookshop will also stream that event. So if you'd like to hear more, um, there is more tomorrow night. Um, you just go to the Crolia um, website and um, you can also purchase a hard copy of the journal from the bookshop but definitely download a copy and listen to everything okay thank you so so much for um coming and launching um the journal and i should also say one last thing is that we're now open for submissions from tomorrow first of december to the first of um, march so submit for next year sponsor center for the study of world religions Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.